In a world where it seems totally normal to listen to a podcast about the Toronto Argonauts, it's the X's and Argos Podcast. Welcome to the X's and Argos post-game reaction podcast brought to you by Funny Bone Broth. Ben Grant, joined as always by JB, following an annihilation, 37-16, the Montreal Alouettes take down the Toronto Argonauts. The Alouettes now move into first place, technically tied with the Argos, but it just did not look good today. And I, I don't think we can really take too many positives out of today's game, JB. What were your overall impressions of today? Um, my overall impressions were that this was the worst game that the Argos have played this year. Not only this year, I think it goes back to the 2019 defeat in BC. And I know those diehards out there, myself included, stayed up late to watch a 55-8 finish. I think it was 55 nothing at one point. And man, that was the worst Argos football game I think I've ever seen from start to finish. That was worse than this, but this comes second. It was a it was a brutal game from start to finish. And I shouldn't really say start because the first quarter was okay. Actually, Toronto had Montreal on the ropes. They were driving the football. They couldn't quite get into the end zone. Boris Beattie ended up coming up short on a field goal, which we so rarely see. He just didn't hit it cleanly. The wind was a little bit of a factor, but he just didn't get all of that football. Came up short on a 49-yarder. Hits another one after that. It's 3-0 Argos after one. And the Argos were, at that point, the better team. But then in the second quarter, not only did the wheels fall off, the doors fell off, and the car went crashing into a wall. <laughs> Montreal scores three touchdowns on three straight drives. And really, that was it. At, at halftime, it just didn't feel like a football game anymore. No, you know, the Argos have shown a problem with playing well on the road. I thought that Montreal caught them by surprise. I think, you know, uh, to some extent, the same as we were. Like, I didn't think much of the Montreal quarterback. Um, and he aired it out tonight. I think I think they were surprised with his arm strength. And, uh, you know, I mean... They didn't do anything terribly fancy. They just simply had a couple of huge plays, and and Stanbeck was uh, unstoppable. You know, um, so from an offensive point of view, it, it wasn't a demolition. It was just they were able to to score on on a couple of huge plays, and then defensively, Montreal just was great. You know, since they made that change. On the defensive line, um, you know, we worried about it in terms of the Ottawa game, and they looked great. That defensive line, uh, you know, with the linebackers chewed us up, and the DBs were absolutely ball hunting. So I, I was much more impressed with Montreal's defense. Um, I thought the offense was fine, but I thought, you know, it, 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 I, I didn't think the, the offense was what won the game for them. I felt like the Toronto offensive line really struggled tonight. And I think that that made the Montreal defensive line look that much better. 
And the Montreal DBs were able to just kind of sit back there because they they had a quarterback in McLeod Bethel-Thompson who was throwing under pressure. Every single throw was off his back foot as he's getting planted into the ground. And it's much easier to play DB like that. When you look at the stats after the game, these are just my own sort of keeping at home stats, so they're, they're not official numbers. But I had McLeod Bethel-Thompson getting hit 13 times tonight. He threw four interceptions. A large part of that is due to him getting just absolutely clobbered as he's trying to let go of the football. And the Argos tried different ways to alleviate the pressure. They had Theron Churchill in there sort of playing tight end a little bit. They had Declan Cross out there just trying to give their tackles some help. But the loss of Jamal Campbell and when you combine that with Darius Bladek, those two guys playing together, they were able to make things work without Bladek but not without both of those guys. That right side of the line was it was a problem today. And Richards may have been banged up. He got hurt early in the game and was you know able to sort of tough through it. But I don't think he was 100% for the rest of the game. And Tate just looked, he looked out of place. He looked a step slow. On that right side, they had no success with any sort of exotic blitzes or pressures. Any time Montreal stunted, they just came oh right through. God. I mean, the loops, like yeah. they didn't pick up a single loop. Chris Ackie, it was like, uh, you know, it was like uh, practice with garbage cans. Yeah. You know, where yeah, you're like, was, okay, you're coming th- you know, we're going to loop you through B. And he just came screaming through every time. And Montreal kept targeting that right side of the Toronto line. They didn't even bother. You didn't see stunts on the other side because they knew that between Philip Lake and Dejan Allen, that there was enough experience out there, they would be fine. But the right side of the line just got torched again and again and again. And it, yeah, it was it was a lot of Chris Aki, but everything they did, where there was a twist or a loop, uh, any kind of stunt, it got through. And McLeod Bethel-Thompson took shot after shot. And, and I was amazed that he kept getting up. Well, I think it, I think, you know, I think what, what it really speaks to is how absolutely crucial it is for Toronto to score early and often. That that has to be absolutely priority one. Um, you know, to jump sports for a moment, you know, like Montreal in the playoffs last year basically only won the games that they scored first. And when they didn't score first, their whole game plan fell apart because their whole game plan was built around scoring first and then protecting that lead. Um, and so for Toronto, Toronto is absolutely built to play with the lead and is absolutely not built to come back from a 10-point deficit. Everything falls apart. The run game falls apart. The line is not strong enough to handle a pass-heavy uh, schedule. I mean, it, just ha- it comes down to it where you just have to feel like we have to get the, to 10 first or we're not going to win this game. And so I, w- I would like to see that be more a priority. I would never kick a field goal in the first quarter. I think that the Argos have to score touchdowns because if they get up, they're going to win the game. But they cannot they cannot be be down a touchdown. They just have shown over and over again that if if the line needs to pass protect and the defense knows it's a pass, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, everything you said I agree with. The The Argos running game is a strength 
when it's being used sort of as a primary weapon. And John White out there, again, looked terrific at the beginning of the game, but then they had to completely abandon it right. midway through the second quarter. We just didn't see, and we, that, we, they basically right. didn't run the ball. And the line can't hold up with the defense knowing that it's Pasco. Like, right. it's just, you just can't. You just have to know as a team, we have to get to 10 first and, you know, damn the torpedoes. That's all that matters is that we get, to, you know, that we score first early and often. Because um, those games, basically the, these games are being won in the first quarter. And during the game today, I was talking to Will from Argos Fancast. We were talking about the defensive tackles on the Argos. These aren't defensive tackles, especially the guys that are in right now, aren't defensive tackles that are built to withstand a constant pounding in the run game. And so like you're saying on the other side of the ball, when the Argos are up, the opposition isn't going to pound the ball repeatedly up the middle. But when they have the lead, that's exactly what they're going to do. And the Argos really aren't built to withstand that. It's a defense that is also built around going after a passer instead of stopping a pounding running back like Stanbeck. And we saw, you know, what happened today where he was just running free again and again and again. Uh, and part of that was due to Montreal's scheme. Like he's a, he's a very talented running back. The Montreal offensive line are very good at run blocking, but they basically decided they can they could outmuscle the defensive tackles and they marked Enoch Mwamba on every play. He's a great run stopper, but every single run play, there was a guard coming directly at him. And as long as they could take Mwamba out of the play, they were going to take their chances with, with everybody else. And it, it just showed that the Argos don't have that ability to stuff the run, even when they knew... He was running in two down football like this, like when you've got back to back run plays and you know it's going to be a run and you still let them convert first down after first down. It's a problem. And like you're saying, this is this shows that Toronto is just not a team that can get behind. And if Toronto gets behind, this is exactly what's going to happen if the opposition has a competent running game. And in the playoffs, guess what? Every everyone you play has a competent running game. Yeah, it, you know, I, I think it's a weakness. It just is what it is. You know, the Argos are rebuilding. They were very, very bad two years ago. They're much better now, but they're not some unassailable, you know, force. You know, they are better than they were. This is a weakness they have. Can they play call and scheme around it? That's what we'll have to see. Let's talk a little bit about that second quarter with the three Montreal touchdowns. When I talked to Enoch Mwamba after the game, I asked about how surprised they were that Montreal went to the air so much early on in this game because they kind of went reverse uh, strategy uh, using the pass to set up the run. Um, he said they weren't really surprised, but they knew that they had to commit personnel to the run. So they knew that there was going to be a lot of a lot of single coverage downfield. And he felt like, and I think correctly so, that for the most part, the guys were in good position. We look at that that first touchdown that Montreal scored. Lewis catches that 33-yard touchdown pass from Schiltz. It looked like Tristan Deku was in perfect position. On the replay, you could clearly see that Lewis grabs Tristan by the hair, throws him to the ground. It's very clearly offensive pass interference. And yet it's not challenged. It's reviewed by the command center because every scoring play is reviewed. They don't see it either. 
And suddenly, you know, all all of Twitter is going crazy, saying that's pass interference, that's pass interference, and there the conversion suddenly getting kicked, and well, it's too late. I mean, I looked it up. So, so the so the command center will not review anything that is reviewable by the coach. Mm-hmm. So the command center can, will not save you. So. Even if they saw PI, PI is a coach challengeable offense. So they will not identify anything that is the coach's job to identify. But on that play, that is the responsibility because it's a scoring play. No, no. There's only a couple of things that they're checking for as a scoring play. They do not check for anything that falls under a coach's challenge. That's interesting. And talking to Coach Dinwiddie after the game, he felt he had missed that one, but didn't at the time because he didn't have enough data. So he said that when that play occurred, they didn't show a replay in the stadium. He's not getting a good look at it. And even the TV feed showed it late. It wasn't until they were lining up to kick that extra point that you finally got a a glimpse of it. And by the time you took a, a quick second look, it was already being kicked. And so they didn't really have a... They didn't really have an opportunity, I guess, they felt, to throw the flag. But you and I were talking during the game about this. You throw a flag on that almost regardless. Because of how animated Tristan Decoux was, when he got up, he knew he was interfered with. I don't think he was exactly sure how it happened, but he knew that he didn't throw himself onto the ground. And so, given that, just his reaction and what a big play that was at that moment. I think you have to trust your player and throw the flag there. Yeah, I I understand why he didn't immediately throw the flag because watching it on TV, it it looked like he fell. But again, I think you have to have a different mindset in the first quarter of the game, first quarter and a half. And on that play, what 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 is the downside really of losing a first half? Um, you know, timeout. I think I think you have to challenge there. It's absolutely a game-changing play. I, I mean, I wasn't crazy, to be honest with you, that we were in man coverage on a change of possession, right? Like, when we fumbled, you know, uh, the ball and, and, and turned it over, you ha- I mean, everybody knows what's coming. Play action dagger. I mean, it, it's, it's so obvious to the point of, like, absurdity. Uh, I don't know why you're not in um, more of a shell there because, you know, I mean, <laughs> who isn't looking for play action dagger on change of possession? It's funny that you say that because I, I feel like I, I do agree with that. And that's my own philosophy. And I always look for that. I feel like there's been a lot less of that sudden change philosophy this year around the league. So many times where I'm expecting to see that sudden change deep shot after a turnover, it ends up being a run play. And I, I feel like that may be kind of this regression to the mean where so many defensive coordinators are now aware of that and and players are aware of that. You know, you teach sudden change starting in, in, in Bantam. And it, it may be to a point where now offensive coaches are actually going away from that deep shot because it, it almost always ends up incomplete now. So maybe we've seen that shift come full circle and now the correct move is to start going deep again. But back to Tristan Deku's coverage, it was good. He was there. So regardless of whether or not it's the right call, the coverage was was solid. He was in a position to make a play. He just, he got interfered with and and was unable to make a play because he was physically thrown to the ground. 
Yeah, they that was that was a miss. You know, there's no two ways about it. The second play, the second touchdown for Montreal. We'll get to in a second. We we had a really beautiful quick drive from the Argos in response to that and you kind of felt like okay the Argos are are back in this game they took the lead again 10-7 after Bethel Thompson just launched two deep passes a 38 yarder to Ricky Collins Jr. Uh, Gittins Jr. then with 27 yards and suddenly they're standing there on the eight yard line and Pipkin comes in has a really nice play, pump fake to the left side, runs it to the right, in for an eight-yard touchdown. Argos are back on top, 10-7, and the game felt in hand still at that point. We're now midway through the second quarter, and cue the wheels falling off. So let's talk about that busted coverage play that, that happened next. So I think anyone watching this game remembers this play. It was the biggest play of, of well, it was the biggest passing play of the night, 58 yards. Uh, Schultz again to Lewis. This was a bust in coverage. Schultz dropped back, seemed to be watching Lewis the whole way. No one went with him on his skinny post, and Schultz hit him in stride. No one nearby at all for a 58-yard touchdown. So you and I, when we were talking in the game, saw this very differently, and I'll I'll have to go back. When we do our rewatch, it'll be interesting to see you know, what we spot, because, you know, one of us is probably going to be wrong on this. And it, you know, it could be either one of us, I guess. But I saw this as I saw this as the halfback on the field side. And it was Jeff Richards in that case. I think he believed it was man coverage. I think we both agree that we saw cover two to the boundary side on the field side. I don't know what coverage they were in. Maybe they were in cover two as well. Maybe they were in, they could even have been in zero, really, depending on on who was right and who was wrong. But it looked like Jeff Richards thought for sure he had man and he followed the inside receiver on the out route that he had. And I think he expected Tristan Deku to go with Lewis. And Lewis clearly expected uh, Richards to go with, with Lewis and, uh, and Deku and... And Richards both end up uh, taking that out, and no one goes with Lewis. He ends up wide yeah. open for a touchdown. How do you see that play? What did you see uh, as well, going it, wrong? It, it doesn't make any sense because, like, uh, it's true. They could be in split, but if they were just in straight cover two and they were in cloud where you're going to have your corners in your deep halves, um, that makes sense that the corner who is supposed to drop deep got the sniff of an underneath and suddenly thought interception and screwed up his his deep drop um that to me makes more sense to i i don't understand what on earth the outside corner was doing he he wasn't in man because the guy that he stopped for was not his man and he wasn't in underneath zone so i don't know what he was in other than he was supposed to be dropping deep and he suddenly thought that he read an underneath pass and you know guys are so prone these days to have you know um to, to come off their receiver right like to to you know but usually you scheme it and you don't do it individually but you know you look like you're in zone and then you come off your receiver and then you jump the underneath pass uh, i i don't understand what else the corner could have been doing it he he, he couldn't have thought it was man and he was not in a deep drop zone. So I don't know what he was doing other than just standing in the middle of the field and, you know, playing ball. 
The only way I see Tristan Deku being at fault here, if it was man, is if he didn't call a switch and he expected there to be a switch. It doesn't look like that's what's going on, but you do notice on that play, and again, it was a while ago now, and I want to go back and watch it, but it felt like on that play we had what I refer to as a spike release, where you have one receiver sort of trailing another receiver. And that makes it very difficult in man coverage because depending on which way they go, you will often execute a switch defensively for your man coverage. And so right. maybe in that case, uh, Deku expected that they would switch, but it wasn't communicated either quickly enough or, or well enough. And that message never got to Richards. And so they both ended up going with, with the out route. But that's the only way that I can see it you know, where, where it was sort of Deku's fault and it was man. Yeah, I mean, it was a man, it was certainly a man-beater route combination, but usually it beats man in a different way. <laughs> you were talking about Cover 2 Cloud. I just want to air a quick frustration with football terms in general. Um, there's so many, you know, if, if you uh, listening at home, uh, get confused sometimes by football terminology you're not alone this this is such a frustration for me in that I, I feel very comfortable with my own terminology and what I call things but it's not at all universal and I've become very frustrated with coach Dinwiddie who refers to cloud and sky in the opposite way that I refer to cloud and sky. He also reverses his R and Y receiver from what I'm accustomed to. Um, And it's just one of those things where, you know, football's not quite universal. There are some universal things, but some terms you have to kind of sit down and say, okay, when you say this, what exactly do you mean? So yeah, usually like when I say, when I'm talking about cloud, I'm talking about corners deep and safety's up. And when I'm talking about sky, I'm talking about halfbacks deep and 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 corners up. But um, yeah, it's not everyone's on the same page as that. So it's just one of those interesting things as we're as we're talking about that second touchdown. No, because I mean it was a nice route combination. I'd love to know what they were in because they whatever they were in, they did really wrong. I would just love to know which one it was because I'd be fascinated to see what they were thinking. I had that question loaded up for the post-game pressers, but they did not send us any DBs or any defensive coaches, so I didn't get a chance to ask that. <laughs> and I didn't figure that Enoch Mwamba was going to be able to, to walk us through that the same way that a the DC or a DB might have. So maybe during the week we'll get a chance to get to the bottom of that because I'm, I'm really interested. I want to know what that was. Was it a disguise gone wrong? Was it a miscommunication? Or was it one player missing their assignment, believing it was man when it was zone or or vice versa. Now that third touchdown pass of the second quarter, that you have to give full credit to Montreal. It was a well-executed drive. They they pushed their way down the field. It was it was a super long drive, like a 12-play yeah, drive. That that was <clears throat> that was really the only point where I thought that you know the defense got embarrassed. Yeah. And it wasn't the end of it either. That was the beginning of the embarrassment that that would continue for the second half but that put Montreal up 21-10 and that was the score going into the half both teams kind of had a chance near the end of the second quarter but 21-10 at half and then the third quarter was very slowly tilting towards Montreal not a lot of scoring it was only 24 to 10 by the end of the third only one field goal scored but it just didn't feel like Toronto could get anything going there there was a stretch where 
Toronto had two and outs on four of five possessions. It just seemed like every time they got the ball, it was two-yard run, incomplete pass, punt. Yeah, you know, they... (laughs) I mean, I think think exactly that. I think that they... um, you know, they just couldn't find any rhythm to to the play calls. And you see that happen to teams all the time. Like, offense is such a, um, you know, there, there's, there's such a uh, a rhythm to it that, that people, I think, often underestimate. And, you know, it's just hard when it's not flowing to to get a sense of, how can we, how can we get at these guys? You know, you, you're basically just going two plays. There's nothing really to diagnose. Now it's over, and so you're, you're just throwing dart. I mean, they were just throwing darts at a dartboard the second half. It just felt like that. There was, you know, they had abandoned their game plan by that point because the score had gotten out of hand. By the time they got the ball in the fourth quarter, it was twenty-seven ten. Montreal added a single on their next drive. Then we finally saw a Toronto drive, really their only sustained drive of the entire game, where I think it was like a nine-play drive. They walked the ball all the way down the field. It results in that that Pipkin run, but that was on third down, third and one. They were were first and goal from the two, and back-to-back QB sneaks get stuffed. And then on the third one, Pipkin runs it around the outside. Um, And this was an interesting play because I've had a lot of people ask why in the CFL, when it's a quarterback sneak, does everyone leave the backfield and sort of seal around the ends? And the reason is because of this play. It's if the defensive team is going to overcompensate and really pinch inside to stop that quarterback sneak, then you can do exactly this. And you've got your receivers and running backs around the outside to seal and Pipkin could have walked around the outside into the end zone. So that's why you see teams um, in a formation like that on a quarterback sneak instead of having a running back there for, you know, for the possibility of it going to that running back or even to sort of buck block, push that quarterback into the end zone. The reason is so you can run plays like this when the defense starts cheating. So Pipkin runs in for his second touchdown of the night. It's now 28-16. The Argos go for two. And I just kind of feel like we're at a point where McLeod Bethel-Thompson should not be in there for two-point conversions anymore. I feel like he just throws interceptions on those plays. And it's it's just not the right situation for him. He's not great from... From the five-yard line, it's just not playing to his skill set. Keep Pipkin out there for the two-point conversion. Yeah, just run. I mean, what the hell, man? That's all Pipkin should be doing at practice is 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 running through twenty-five two-point conversion goal line plays, and like that should be his playbook. Period. You know, like you know, if Pipkin comes in, like, look, we're not. You know, it's. If he's coming into the game, it's mop-up duty mid-game. For me, I, I, I 100%, I think at practice, it should be him standing on a goal line, running goal line plays for two-point conversion and for and for for running in the, the ball uh, in short yardage. You know, I think he there's no reason not to to have him be an expert at it. 
Looking at the stats, uh, it's pretty much what you would expect. McLeod Bethel-Thompson ended up with decent yardage, but it was only because the Argos were forced to throw so many times. He yeah, was 25 for 40. Four interceptions fumble, too. Yeah, four interceptions of fumble, 25 for 40, 62% completion. He looked like, he looked like 2019. Yeah, he, he looked highly uncomfortable. And a lot of it is the offensive line allowing countless pressures but he just didn't seem to have it today either his his accuracy wasn't there at all really there were a few touch passes early on that he missed there was a deep ball that was wide open that he couldn't drop in there another pass to ricky collins jr early on that he tried to float in and ricky would have run for for 40 50 yards and he just didn't quite have it today and so even when he wasn't being pressured I didn't feel like McLeod Bethel-Thompson was was on his game. And we've seen this happen to him before, and that's a little bit concerning because I feel like this may be the first time that Coach Dinwiddie has seen this side of McLeod Bethel-Thompson, which you don't get often, but sometimes this is what you get from him. I would I was really curious to see if, um, if Arbuckle had been good to go as the two, would they have made the change at half? And I still think no, based on what the result was last week. Like how after last week, when you leave McLeod in and he comes out with this amazing second half, yeah. do you then pull him this week? But the game didn't feel the same, though. No, Back, it didn't. You know, like we felt done. Like I, I felt like at halftime, I was going to switch over to Jason and the Argonauts on Turner Classic Movies. <laughs> in fact, I did for for a section. Um, you know, it, it just felt done. It didn't, they didn't feel like they were in the game. So I, I wonder, I really do wonder. And I wonder who starts next game. I still think McLeod Bethel Thompson is going to start the next game. I would not be surprised to see Nick Arbuckle dressed though. And I think that, you know, maybe that was something today where they kind of realized, you know, not dressing him because he was on the the pregame depth chart dressed or as the third quarterback, but of course every team has to scratch someone going into the game and and it was going to be one of the quarterbacks and so it's it's Arbuckle, the third quarterback. So he was in, in civvies for the game, uh, but obviously made the trip out there. I bet you that is not the scenario this coming week. I, and if, we'll, if we'll me, see. I start Arbuckle. I think you have two quarterbacks. You don't owe Macbeth anything. You've given him a nice little run here. Um, I think you you got to put Arbuckle back in there and, and see what you have. I want to see what the Lions are about before I make that call. I haven't watched, like I've watched, I've watched every Lions game probably this year. As I've seen pretty much every, I think I've seen every CFL game this year, but I haven't watched closely thinking about the Argonauts offense versus the BC defense. So that's something that I'm interested to kind of dig into and see which quarterback matches up better. But yeah, I, I, I well, wouldn't I, argue with putting Arbuckle yeah, in. And, and I think, look, you're looking at this team. And, you know, they, I, I don't think this year is great cup or bust. Um, I think you're looking at player evaluation. And who I, I think only one of these two come back next year. So I think you want to be really sure which of the two it is. And to that end, I would definitely give Arbuckle another run at reclaiming the starting quarterback job. I think I think it works out perfectly for them. Back to the stat sheet. If we 
if we look at the receiving numbers, uh, Curly Gittens Jr. just jumps off the page here yeah, with nine targets, eight receptions for 116 yards. Yeah, he, he had an awesome game. But after that, you've got Ricky Collins Jr. He had six catches for 95 yards, which is great, but on 11 targets. So it, he's not connecting on on half of these these passes. And no. Diverse Daniels, who had two catches in that first drive, only ends up with two more for the rest of the entire game. And, you know, it was it was pretty rough throwing the football. Yeah, I mean, Colin still, you would like to see some more contest in some of those catches. Uh, Worthy looks like he could potentially be useful as a receiver, but still raw. Um, I, I think Gittens is a great find. I think that's the takeaway, is he is absolutely a starting wide receiver in the CFL um but uh I don't know I don't know what what to what to make of DeVaris Daniels yeah he was four catches on seven targets for 30 yards Damien Jean-Pierre was targeted twice one reception for 14 yards Chandler Worthy targeted five times but only one catch for 11 yards yeah he's not quite there yet and then you look at the running game, and there there wasn't any. Uh, the leading rusher, John White, four carries for 20 yards. That's the Argos' leading rusher. The only other person with four carries was Antonio Pipkin, three of which I think were quarterback sneaks. And and the fourth was uh, a well, longer I, quarterback sneak from the five. I think it got harder and harder to run because <clears throat> as they got down, uh, you know, the, the defensive line just pinned their ears back. So, you know, if didn't matter if it wasn't a pass because, like, you had four defensive linemen coming screaming at you. So if it was a run, you know, they essentially were run blitzing at the same time. Um, and you look on the other tough. side of the football at the Alouettes, uh, Matt Schultz, while he started out the game on fire with all those deep passes, they they just completely pulled him back in the second half and just relied on William Stanback. Schultz ended up 12 of 18, only 18 passes, 212 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions. Exactly what you would have wanted his numbers to look like as Kahari Jones. Like that, if you give Kahari Jones that stat line, he'd say, yeah, that means that means we win the game. And William Stanback, 24 carries, 203 yards. And he just absolutely mowed the Argos 8.5 yards a carry. He had two huge runs and just wore the, the, the pants yeah, off them. I mean, I think that I like Foster and I like White. But today we looked at what an elite CFL running back looks like. Yeah, and, and it's also the offensive line. It's it's both together. But yeah, he was he was tough to stop. And then Lewis... Seven seven targets, seven catches, 156 yards, and two touchdowns. I know one of them was on busted coverage. One of them was on an OPI. But, you know, those numbers are, are pretty sick. And I think the only thing that stands out for Toronto defensively, Enoch Mwamba, you know, welcome back. He was much needed, leads the team with, with eight tackles. But they were scheming for him, and he just couldn't do it all himself. And, you know, he needed help today. JB, let's move on to the players of the game and the plays of the game. The player of the game for the offense is really obvious for me. It's got to be Curly Giddens Jr. Like I, I said, just reading off his, his stats just now, an amazing game with nine targets, eight catches, 116 yards. He's really coming to his own. And, and he's playing the Z spot too. I think that's what's really cool is that he's playing the position that is the toughest to get the ball to. 
and yet he still ends up with eight catches for 116. That uh, speaks partly to McLeod's arm strength, but also like what an amazing job this guy's doing. Yeah, he played great. Uh, I thought Bethel Thompson had a real impact for Montreal's offense um, <laughs> all night. So I, I would probably lean towards giving it to him. In a sarcastic nod, that's your player of the game? For the Montreal offense, yeah. I thought he generated a lot of offense for them. Hmm. I don't feel like that's allowed, but I'm going to let it pass based on how the game went. For defensive player of the game, uh, I, I went with Robbie Smith. Uh, I had really had trouble finding a defensive player of the game. I'd like to give it to Enoch Mwamba, but his eight tackles were great. He was just, he was schemed so well for... I, I, he just wasn't enough to make a difference in the game. And I guess neither was Robbie Smith, but I thought he played really well. He ended up with five tackles. Uh, he had a forced fumble in there. He, I felt like they weren't really accounting for him in the run. And most of his tackles were coming back to make up for uh, someone else's mistake. Uh, he made some tackles that really saved long runs and they weren't really things that fell under his jurisdiction he was making plays for other guys out there I thought he looked really good and so I'm going to give my defensive player of the game to Robbie Smith yeah that's a nice pick I, I I'd probably go McCoy I thought he played a better first half than second half but uh you know I thought that he um thought that he was a factor um you know I I think they just were getting dominated at at the line and um you know they were not having much luck um being able to to put any kind of pressure so like from a linebacker point of view i think they just were caught in traffic on every play um but i I thought mccoyle played um played a great first half so that that's enough for me yeah, he did. And, you know, in the second half, unfortunately, that was when the, the running game took over for the Alouettes. But just as you think of that, and I, I was kind of reflecting back on McCoy's game, I, is this is this the most invisible we've ever seen Chris Edwards, a guy that we've both raved about uh, in almost every game so far this season? I don't remember seeing much of Chris Edwards in this game at all. No, I would say this game and the Hamilton game. Yeah, yeah, it's a couple I, I in a row. I didn't think he particularly flashed in either. Um, I don't know whether that's a, a Jones thing or or what that is, but um, he certainly is not the player who who I saw the first six games of the season. When I look at the play of the game for the Argos, there really weren't a lot of options here for me either. There was one play I really liked, though, and that was the first Pipkin touchdown. I thought it was just a really nice play design. So you've got Pipkin out there. I think it is a huge asset that sure people view him as a running quarterback. He's out there in short yardage situations. But I think the fact that Dinwiddie has let him throw quite a lot and people know he can throw. He's been a starting quarterback in this league. There's respect for his arm. And so when he got out there on the eight yard line, he takes the snap and looks immediately for a quick hitch pass, you see the Montreal linebackers take off that way because they respect it. And then he turns on the Jets, runs the opposite direction, and strolls in for the touchdown. I thought that was a really well-designed play. I thought it was run really well by by Pipkin. And it was also sold by the receivers. Everyone on the Montreal defense bought it. And in a night that just didn't have a lot of really nice plays to talk about, I thought that was the best play of the night. Yeah, Blake had a beautiful kickout block. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
I was going to come up with something snarky here too, like the end of the game. I thought the McCoyle sack in the first half, back when I felt we were trading punches, was a big play. Other than that, there was nothing in the second half um, that was just very encouraging. I think, you know, when you, you know, look, you play a good team on the road, um, that's a tough place to win a game and you go down two scores you know, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to win that game. And we, the, the Argos haven't won since 2015 there. You're not going to win that game. So I think that, you know, I, I, I'm not that down on the Argos. I think they played a good team on the road. Uh, they got down to them. And that's what happens statistically when you get down uh, to a good team. You don't, you don't, you don't come back from losing at half to a good team. Um, you know, that's just, how how that plays out you know i think it's something like a 85 percent clip or something that home teams uh, win the game when leading at half it's you know it's quite it's quite drastic so so now you know game on us in montreal i think you know montreal is traded for a quarterback maybe they have their own quarterback controversy now i wonder if they can trade uh trevor harris back <laughs> um you know i mean he's like what who's this kid now now that you know montreal has two quarterbacks, so I don't know if they enjoyed trading for Trevor Harris to back up Schultz. Um, you know, Montreal looks really good. I think they look um, better than Hamilton. And I think that, uh, you know, their defense is good. They have a good running game. If their quarterback play steps up a little, um, I really like Montreal. I think they're going to be, you know, they're going to be a load. But they have a tough schedule coming up, so I'm, I'm excited. I think it's going to be great. You know, from a, from a fan perspective, I think Montreal winning this game makes the last part of the season way more exciting. The Argonauts have the BC Lions coming up next, and I really want to encourage everyone listening to try and get to that game. So it's Saturday, October thirtieth. It's a four o'clock start at BMO Field. And the team is doing everything they can to try and promote this game and to try and make sure they really do have home field advantage. If you get a chance, if you are able to, please come out and support the Toronto Argonauts at BMO Field. It would be great to have a really nice crowd there for a four o'clock start on Saturday, October 30th. And to prep for it, the Lions play Winnipeg Saturday night, tomorrow night. Well, now, of course, it's tonight, JB, as we are now into the wee hours of the morning once Mm. again. But uh, yeah, I'll be watching that game closely to see what we can pick up um, that the Argos may try and exploit next week at BMO Field. That will just about do it for us on this episode of the Post Game Reaction Podcast. For JB, this is Ben Grant saying so long, and may all your pre-snap reads be good ones. I'll see ya. Go Toronto Argos, go, go, go. Pull together, fight the foe, foe.